From the minds of two doctoral students, Race to Education is the podcast that explores the impact of race on education in America. As your hosts, we dive deep into the perspectives and experiences of Black and Latinx communities as they navigate the intricacies of learning in the United States. This is Race to Education. What's up, Wazia? What's going on? Hey, Madison, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm really excited. Can you guess why I'm excited? I have an inkling, and I think it has something to do with our podcast. This is our third episode on air. Whoop, whoop. Third. Three, three, three. <laughs> lucky number three. That actually is my lucky number. Well, can I, get, can I borrow that three? Sure, why not? <laughs> All right. Now we, have, now we both have luck. Good. Now, I think what's exciting, even more so exciting about this episode, is that we are digging into Latinidad and identity formation. So this is, this is actually really exciting for me because I get to put you under a microscope. No. <laughs> don't, don't get scared. Don't get scared. I'm a little scared. <laughs> no, but this is what we signed up for, right? We're, we're being vulnerable here and sharing our experiences. But I think what's really exciting, though, is that you identify as African-American and Puerto Rican, right? But you don't use the label Afro-Latino, right? So in, in your understanding of Latinidad, that doesn't particularly apply to you. And I, I kind of want to dig deeper into that story. So why is that for you? Why don't you identify as Afro-Latino? I mean, the short answer is, you know, my dad is African-American. My mom is Puerto Rican. Um, those two identities, I believe, is very distinctive. So when I think of myself, I want to include them and I don't want all of that to get lost. I'm not saying it, it's going to get lost, but I think that, well, I did say that, but for me, I only can speak for myself. For me, I think that it'll get lost in all the mix. So I really like to try to distinguish between the two. Um, also, my mom doesn't identify as Afro-Latina. Yeah, and I think that's pretty significant, right? Because you actually did 23andMe. So you, you have the basis for this, for understanding this, right? And so the outcome of that your mom identifies more Spaniard, more indigenous. Right. What does that look like for her? We haven't did the test for her yet, but um, I mean, I'm waiting for that, those tests to go back down again, kind of catch those deals. Um, those sales. Those sales. Um, but what I'm getting for me is a good portion of that is the Iberian Peninsula, so that's Spain and Portugal. And then the rest is mostly various countries in Africa. I know Senegal is one, Cameroon is another one. Um, and then about 6% Taino. And, I, you know, I don't, especially with the Elizabeth Warren snafu, I'm really careful to um, using that at any sort of like stake in indigenous identity. Come on, don't do Auntie Elizabeth like that. I mean, I think also her situation is very different. Like, you know, it was a back and forth between occupant number 45. Um, but I think there's a huge difference in being Taino and and ownership of that. Like, I, I know you probably don't want to feel like you're co-opting it. Um, but recognizing that you have that and acknowledging that is important. And, you know, once you do the 23andMe for your mama, you'll find out what her numbers look like, which most likely will be in the double digits. Because I've, right. I've seen Titi and Titi, she, you know, you can <laughs> see the Spaniard there, but you can also see the indigenous features. Right. So th it's really exciting, too. And we have with us today a special guest, Dr. Eddie Fergus who has been really helpful for me personally in my understanding of Latinidad 
and, and racial identification and what that means for young men and women who identify as Latino or Latina and how they actually experience schooling and how they, they move throughout the world. But it's also really important to understand, too, like their issues and, and how those are centered in conversations that we have about Latinidad. Yeah, it's really important to also let the world know that we are not monolithic and that we go beyond immigration and English language learning. We have to think as much as possible of how to be more inclusive when we're thinking about people in the Latinx community. And I think that government policy, especially policies and practices in schools, they're worrying about how to translate documents into Spanish. And that might not be the number one issue, right? We have the same people that identify um, Afro-Latino, they might experience or they will experience discrimination the same as African-Americans or Black because of the color of their skin. So there's so many things that we must consider when we're talking about Afro-Latinos, Latinx community, because again, we're not coming from the same place. We have some similarities and some of us, some of the similarities are that we're all here in the United States, right? But beyond that. I think the other similarity is that you share the language, right? So sharing Spanish, but Spanish is not necessarily inclusive of the culture. That's one aspect of the culture that you share Spanish, but there's of course different dialects, but also the culture that comes with each different Latin American country is that they have their own different cultural experiences. And so there's a huge difference between like a caribeño, right? So someone who's like from Dominican Republic or from Puerto Rico or from Cuba, right? Their experiences are going to be significantly different because of their cultural background and because of how they identify. And in a place like New York City, which is, which has such a huge population of Dominican Americans, like a lot of them appear to be Afro-Latino, but don't have the same experiences as African-Americans. So I think it's important to make that distinction. And I hope we're able to dive deep with Dr. Eddie Fergus. Dr. Eddie Fergus is an applied researcher at Temple University. His work explores the effects of educational policy and practice as it intersects in the lives of populations living in vulnerable conditions. More specifically, his policy work extrapolates the relationship between discipline, codes of conduct, gifted programming, and academic referral processes and the educational outcomes of low-income and racial ethnic minority student populations. His work also outlines policy and practice changes in order for schools to develop as protective environments for vulnerable populations. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm excited. Dr. Fergus, I'm extremely happy to have you here on the show. Your work is very influential to what I'm researching now as a doctoral student. Um, involving school discipline and how that impacts boys of color. And I'm happy that you're here to make this connection with us. But here at Race Through Education, we're focused on the schooling and educational experience of Black and Latinx communities. And it's important to understand the diversity and intersections of Latinidad. And Dr. Fergus, a good portion of your research focuses on the experiences of Latinx students and their identification. So I wanted to ask you, how did you get into studying this particular topic? One of my mentors mentioned to me while I was in uh, at University of Michigan doctoral program around, you know, recognizing that um, that in some ways or another, researchers are always studying things that are closely tied to their own stories. An area of inquiry that I always had was around sort of the trying to really extrapolate the understandings that we have about a Latinx identity, and specifically, you know, what are the things that complicate that identity? And the facet that I was really interested in was. Um, the idea of race, in particular, phenotype as a proxy of race, sort of fit within the mix of Latinx identities, and also recognizing that 
Latinx as a as an umbrella term or a pan-ethnic term, as Dr. Espirito talks about, is the idea that, that these identity constructs are utilized in a way that projects the idea that, that it's a real group, but in reality, it operates as an umbrella term. So for me, I wanted to really sort of extrapolate that under that umbrella, there are nuances, nuances that I think were, I wanted to really sort of unpack within the confines of my own research. A lot of students that I went to school with also spoke Spanish. So they would kind of go in and out of English and Spanish, some Spanglish. And I felt like there was a barrier. There was a barrier between me and them because I couldn't fully understand. You know, in some ways, it was fun to be able to find a sweet spot within the research around academic variability. The academic variability research really talks about the idea of trying to explain why do some racial ethnic minority groups do better than others? A, a representation of that was John Ogbu's work, which I happened to read an article when I was a fourth year in undergrad. I read one of Ogbu's articles. So this was in 1994, 1995. And I was intrigued by his concept around this idea that there's a sort of a cultural reference point that we that uh, racial ethnic minority groups utilize as part of the lens that they make sense of their own academic progress. And so for me, what sat with me was trying to make sense of, you know, so well, how does this look for, um, for Latinx populations when you have such a diaspora existing within there, particularly by skin color? And um, so I wanted to, you know, I really wanted to kind of unpack that stuff within the context of Latinx student populations. To give a little background, John Ogbu has been considered controversial by many scholars because of how his work played into the narratives of white supremacist notions that sought to spread the idea of Black inferiority within education. He othered Black learners as having an oppositional culture towards education as a way to account for their academic failure. He classified minorities into two groups, voluntary minorities and involuntary minorities. His words, not mine. Voluntary minorities included groups of minoritized immigrants that came to America willingly and of their own volition. So this would include groups like Agbu himself, a Nigerian man who immigrated to the United States in pursuit of higher education, and also Caribbean folks. Involuntary minorities are those who have had their status as Americans thrust upon them. This includes African Americans, Native Americans, and Puerto Ricans who were enslaved, displaced, and colonized. In making this distinction, he asserted that voluntary and involuntary minorities have different cultural and ecological approaches to education and assimilation. Involuntary minorities, like African Americans and Puerto Ricans, were pigeonholed into this anti-education culture, which would account for their limited academic success. This approach, or labeling, has been so damaging because many white academics jumped on this research coming from a black man that furthered racist narratives about minoritized populations' approach towards learning. Seemingly absolving the institutions and practices of racism and prejudice from any responsibility for their contributions to widespread opportunity gaps. I, I, I'm very proud of you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You got it. That, that's what I love to hear. I love to hear scholars who are in development who are not only just reading this stuff, but you're starting to ingest it as part of your own DNA, your own scholarly DNA. Yes. that you're able to really sort of sort of unpack the not just the, the study but what's the broader sort of messaging that comes out of it and mm -hmm. you're right that was part of the slippery slope around Agbu's argument is that it's a way to kind of 
you know, sort of chastise some groups and promote others, right? Yeah. It, it lends itself to this idea of sort of the model minority that Stacey Lee really tried to, you know, do work around trying to unpack and mm-hmm. recognizing that, no, that, that, that even is a problematic construct, you know, for us to kind of construct this idea that there's good and bad sets of racial ethnic minority groups. When in fact, uh, what was actually happening is that you have groups that are experiencing racialization, that that is the conduit that we have to tackle and we have to sort of really unpack. You know, part of it is the, the recognition of Joan Nagel in one of her articles that for me was like really important framing of understanding sort of the constructions of identity is the idea of how I think about of myself is in relation to how I see others viewing me as well. So the idea of recognizing that the experiences of very sort of Latinx populations is not just a matter of sort of how they may see themselves, but also how the world is seeing them, right? So the idea of how we construct even the notion of Latinx. I think about in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was this whole catchphrase of the Latin explosion, right, in music. And it was, you know, which I was fascinated by because I'm like, wait a second, the imagery of this Latin explosion, which, you know, as somebody who, in terms of music-wise, like that's the music, all these artists are, you know, and the music is what I grew up with, but then seeing sort of, well, who who was allowed to explode into the mainstream, Mm -hmm. right, became just added to the further deepening of sort of what is constructed as who gets to be in this Latin umbrella and who doesn't get to be. Right. So you had your imagery of Jennifer Lopez, your Ricky Martin, um, eventually sort of Mark Anthony. Right. But there was a, a manner in which that sort of identification became and it, it lives in people's imaginations as as a matter of sort of constructing who is in the Latinx category, but also who is not. And um, and as somebody who's born and raised in Panama and I didn't come to the U.S. till I was 10, you know, and recognizing sort of my part of my lived experiences has always been. Uh, knowing that I am, I am black, but also recognizing that also had a level of limited latitude in terms of how much I can also apply my black identity as including my Latinx identity, right? And and so really trying to extrapolate sort of the uh, what I ended up writing about is out of not only my dissertation work, which turned into a book, which turned into a whole bunch of articles around it, was the construction of that Latinx identity in particular, the national identities that individuals have, that there is a level of latitude that's permissible within the U.S. context because of how we racialize people. The black and white binary in the U.S. further contributes to racial hierarchy and ethnic boundaries. White people are associated with privilege and power, which has leveraged institutional racism to accumulate wealth and social mobility. On the other hand, black people are racially cast at the bottom to support whiteness, white privilege, and white supremacy. Sometimes we have to make a political decision. Is it to our advantage to check white? What does it mean if we check black? It doesn't take too long to understand which lives matter more in America. It doesn't take too long to see who gets access to resources and wealth and who does not. The 2000 census required Latinx folks to identify race and ethnicity. This essentially made Latinx Americans think of themselves as a racialized group and not just an ethnic group. The agency that we have is how we self-ascribe. We can attach ourselves to language, cultural practices, and places of origin to feel like we belong, but we also have to decide who's in and who's out. We may not be seen by others as Puerto Rican enough. We may not be seen by others as Panamanian enough. 
Colorism is real and sometimes it is not addressed adequately. It does not help that the black and white binary has forced us to decide where we should belong and what it means for our people. We are phenotypically diverse, which is beautiful, yet sometimes there are limitations to how we see ourselves and how we should move forward. Identity is complex, and even I continue to struggle. Dr. Fergus, a lot of your research centers on Latinx identity. Do you have any experience grappling with who you are and how others see you? So it's interesting, and I'll answer the question through experience. I remember one of my dissertation committee members, Frances Aparicio, who she's now a professor at uh, University of Chicago, I believe. And I remember Frances, one of the things that she said to me in the first class that I took with her when she was the American in the American Studies Department, and um, and it was a class on Latin identity, Latinx identity, I think it was. And I remember in the class we were sort of go, really diving into readings, and she said, she said, I want us to acknowledge in this classroom, which was majority, you know, Latinx doctoral students. She said, Eddie is the darkest person I have seen in about ten years. And, you know, and she, but she framed it in a way that it was about, you know, recognizing that there is also sort of who we need to recognize also live within the same umbrella and what it's meant for us when we don't see that, how that ends up sort of creating sort of an imagery of what we consider or who we consider as part of the diaspora in terms of being able to speak about sort of the varied Latinx experience. And that stuck with me because as I moved forward, I did my dissertation work as I was working on trying to get it published, both in article form and in, in book format, was I was finding myself not getting a lot of traction within conference spaces that focus on Latino studies. Madison, can you talk about your experience growing up in El Barrio, or also known as Spanish Harlem or East Harlem, as someone who identifies as Black and Puerto Rican? And we're not going to call it Spaha today because that's what the gentrifiers have been calling that now. Do you know that? Did you know that? Um, I refuse. I refuse to, just like they're calling Washington Heights Wahai. No one's doing that. No one's doing that. So this is my neighborhood, Spanish Harlem. That's how I know it. And that's El Barrio. Exactly. El Barrio. So El Barrio was predominantly Puerto Rican and started to get, you know, more African-American and Mexican, but predominantly uh, Puerto Rican at the time when I was in school. And I remember just being surrounded by so much culture, so much food, so much language. And it was very, very beautiful. I love my community. I didn't know anything else but this community. It was vibrant. Um, An outsider would say, wow, those people are living um, in so-so conditions. But for me, I didn't see that. It, it was so normalized. I felt welcome at points in my life, but there were times where I felt not welcomed. Um, I remember as I was growing up in my house, my mom is Puerto Rican. My dad is African-American. For the most part, we didn't really have a lot of race conversations. I learned a lot about how to treat people nice, how to do things correctly, how to give people the benefit of the doubt. And Kind of reflecting on that now, I think it was pretty a pretty race neutral home, surprisingly. And this is no shade at my mom or my dad, but we just didn't have a lot of race conversations. We focused more on character building, and that thought that was a little strange growing up. But also now that I'm, you know, I'm a PhD student now, I'm like, mom, really? Like you could not, you could not talk more about these things. And it was not like injustices wasn't happening. We would talk about them, but we would never talk about my identity, our identity as a family. 
So as you know, you learn a lot, a lot of things from school. <laughs> so I got the schooling of what it is to be me when I was in elementary school, middle school, and high school. And I had to learn the hard way. No matter how I saw myself floating around as, you know, race was not really a thing. I was reminded over and over and over that I had to choose, that there was currency and one over the other. And in this case, because my community was predominantly Puerto Rican, the currency was to be Puerto Rican. And we didn't really talk about race as Puerto Ricans. We talked about issues that Puerto Ricans face, and it was mainly focused on poverty and how that has impacted our community. But we would never talk in or factor in the idea of how race plays a factor a factor into this as well. It's like literally having these hard conversations about where you belong. So I remember having to always find ways of how I can be part of both communities because they were very different. So let me ask you, what did that do for your identity? Did you feel more connected to one side over the other? You know, at times, because obviously there was a barrier. I had a language barrier where I didn't speak Spanish fluently. So, you know, there's Spanglish, Right. We're, and then there's like, um, you know, Spanglish is like people going in and out of Spanish and they're using like a lot of slang as they're talking Spanish. And that was fine. But when it was full fledged conversations in Spanish, that's where I really felt like an outsider. And the only thing that really connected me, Fazia, was the cultural things like the food and the festivals. But the language part of it always made me feel like an outsider. Dr. Fergus, my question for you is, how do we include these Latinx folks who do not neatly fit into a descriptive box? Why is it important to show the nuances that exist among Latinos? I remember one review I got was, you know, these are important issues for us to unpack in terms of the diversity within Latinx identity, but we really need to address to the immigration stuff. And so for me, it's basically was the, yeah, we know it's important. We just can't talk about it right now. And I think that for me, Early on, it's kind of left the bad taste in my mouth. One, it sort of just reminded me of another manner in which, even within scholarly communities, we also do hurt with each other in terms of who we're allowing in the dialogue and whose dialogue points we're not allowing in. So I ended up sort of pivoting my sort of where I was submitting my stuff, where I was presenting, that was much more tied to the Black diaspora, which was excited about the idea of, of actually sort of really talking about that level of complexity, the degree to which not only we're able to talk about sort of skin color variation, but also sexuality sort of variation within our communities, the ways in which class differences also exist within our communities, that if we don't practice that level of sort of this diasporic sort of dialogue, we're just playing into a, the, the, the nature of oppression, right, which uh, forces you into sort of sort of constructing sort of these very limited ideas of what is somebody and what they are not and uh, dehumanizes, you know, sort of those who live within your community, which is really at the core of what oppressive structures kind of do and are tasked to actually maintain. So what I hope is that as a community we get, and I'm, I'm so appreciative to see the current generation really pushing the envelopes around like, Oh, don't forget about me. I'm also part of this community, mm -hmm. right? So what I've learned over time in in set, in those set of experiences, and and also I have, you know, I used to work in Washington Heights, and uh, you know, as you all know, Washington Heights, or for those who don't know, it is a highly Dominican community, and to be in a community where the immediate rendering that they had of me was, oh, you're Dominican, right? And yeah. 
which was fascinating to kind of enter a space where that was the first point of reference that they were they were noting because part of their imagination of identification included what I look like. And so all those bodies of experiences, I think I, for me, have sort of helped me to understand and recognize that as, as we move forward as a diverse community, that we are mindful of not getting into a monolithic trap of dialogue around sort of a, a unidimensional idea of sort of what our identities are bound to and what they contain, because they limit the potential of what we can actually be able to absorb within our communities. The academic research on Latino issues in education seems to be hyper-focused on immigration and English language learners. How did the focus become so limited and monolithic? You know, I think, I mean, on one hand, I appreciate the importance to which those subject matters are prominent within the Latinx community. So it's the, you know, it's the acknowledgement that we've still got a lot more work to do, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing in this current administration, federal administration, that immigration is being weaponized among various communities, and in particular, weaponized through a sort of a nationalist and nihilistic manner of sort of seeing individuals, that it's important for a maintenance of and the pushing around sort of the importance of sort of dialoguing around immigration complexities, right? And even just the fact that we really push the language, continue to push the language that, you know, um, uh, you know, people are not illegal. There could be illegal acts, but there are no mm-hmm. illegal people. That humanity, the humanness of who we are is not illegal. But, um, and the same thing around language. So recognizing the degree to which we are addressing the, in some ways, the haphazardness that we have approached, how we are addressing language learning. You know, so from the, we used to have, under the Clinton administration, the Title VII at the time was called bilingual. And then when we got to Bush's administration in 2000, 2001, the name changed, that office changed from bilingual to English language. So which tells us particular story right there of moving from like, we're appreciating the need to develop this bilingualness to moving to this language of, no, we just want you to learn English. And, but, and also now seeing sort of the evolution of where now in terms of, we're, and not this current administration, because they still have an English language construct within that office, but scholarship is now talking about multi-language learners and recognizing that it's not just about just one, two languages, but it's just a matter of how do we appreciate multilingualness mm-hmm. within various communities? So I acknowledge sort of the reality of how important those pieces are. But again, back to, to the point around appreciating the diaspora is that that can't be the beginning and end of how we talk about Latinx community, that there are other set of facets that also need to be brought into the mix. And we can't treat it as a zero sum game of conversation. Like, well, there's only room to talk about immigration and language. I'm like, no, we've been led to believe that those are the only conversations that are being made permissible because there may be communities who can't handle much more than that. But that shouldn't be our problem. It's a matter of sort of like, how do we make sure that those pieces are woven in in such a way that it's not treated as if there's only so much room of Latinx dialogue that we can have? You know, we can only talk about immigration or language. Dr. Fergus, my question for you is, how do we include Latinx folks who do not neatly fit into the descriptive box? Why is it important to show the nuances that exist among Latinos? As a sociologist, I'm always interested in understanding not just sort of the individual who's doing something, but I also want to understand what's the ecology that keeps that permission going of that belief system and particularly understanding 
um, the, uh, I'm interested in beliefs as an ideology, but also unpacking the manner in which it gets translated into customs, norms, behavior among folks, right? So it's a, I may believe in colorblindness, but then how do I behave colorblindness? So this scale started to, as we were, did a whole bunch of analyses and ended up publishing around it, one of the bias-based beliefs that showed up was colorblindness as having a specifically significant correlation with self-efficacy. So the degree to which you felt confident in your capacity to be an educator, in particular facets of instruction. And so what I became fascinated by, and that's part of been the work that I've been doing over the last seven, eight years, is really sort of unpacking what does this colorblindness stuff come from? What's the historical context of how within, particularly in the U.S., colorblindness was something that evolved out of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the, and the Civil Rights Movement that in some ways we saw as a country a more culturally evolved way to be is to be colorblind because we had spent so many decades, no, let me take that back, so many centuries using color as a frame of reference. And so the idea was to be more culturally evolved, it's like, let's just let it go. Let's not even look at color. So I understood the, the historical context in terms of we walked into sort of colorblindness, but it also operated from the vantage point of it continued to evolve. And uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva talked about sort of this as an ideology, colorblindness gave permission for or still reified the idea that a white cultural lens will still be the normed lens that we're using. So I can be colorblind. So I'm not going to see your color, Madison. I'm not going to see your color, Falsia. I'm not going to see your color, but I am going to engage with you and interpret you based on my white lens because we never said that that white lens was not a universal lens. So any sort of interpretations of behaviors, I'm going to see through my white lens. The thing that rubs me the wrong way is this talk of bravery work. And while I get that it's important to take risks and challenges, especially amongst white educators, I think that it's not necessarily being brave. It's doing the work that is needed to have a more inclusive environment and curriculum. So yes, you know, we have to have the hard talks about race. We have to do it because it is what's best for our students. And we have to do it when we have all black students in the room. And we have to do it when we have all white students in the room. Everybody has to understand where this problem, where this issue lies. And I think that that's not really bravery work. That's just doing the job. So Dr. Fergus, is this bravery work performative on some level? How can educators do the work in an authentic way? To be honest, some of the bravery work needs to happen within your own affinity groups. So I, you know, mm -hmm. so I agree, like white educators need to do that bravery work within your own affinity groups to really sort of unravel Sort of those set of issues so you can have those experiential sort of brave moments because you're right there's almost a, a level of i'm stepping outside of my zone i'm really a, a more evolved person because i'm going to be brave about it within within communities as you both said are living not just bravery they're living survival and they're trying to arrive at some point of thriving you know mm -hmm. and um it's not you know it, it's kind of like the same you know, the ways in which, particularly among white educators who struggle around political correctness, where I'm going to step out and I just don't know which word to use. And, you know, I, I, I just struggle around this political correctness. And I'm like, I said, I was like, you ain't got to struggle with me. Okay. Say what you got to say. Say how you have been raised to say it. And then let's do the work of unpacking. But I want you to be, and that's where I want them to tap into their bravery, to be ready to know how to hear it and know that, look, 
I'm going to, I may push you um, in, and I use this often. I say, I'm going to push you in, in your zone of proximal development and I'm going to provide you some scaffolds, but be ready to be in that zone because you're going to feel like you don't know nothing. You're going to feel this a level of disequilibrium, but know that it's for the good of moving you and sort of encouraging your evolution. I finished in 2002. I remember I turned to my dissertation chair and I said, what am I going to do now? Because I'm not going to academia because I was 27 years old. I was like, I don't know anything. I said, I'm going back to the classroom, right? Like I know I need to go do something. I need to live. So for me, it's always been like writing and especially as an L, as a former L, you know, to have to write in English means organizing my cognitive work in English. For me, it's like, you know, it's always work. But I also recognize, you know, and this is not very popular in academia, is that I write for my community. I'm not writing for academia. And I've been told various times there's certain things I should not try to publish in certain journals because it's not going to get you tenure. We definitely appreciate you, Dr. Fergus. We want to thank you for your time. And can you let our listeners know of any upcoming projects that you may have and where they can find you? So obviously they can find me at Temple University. I'm a associate professor there. I am. <laughs> I have a disproportionality project lab that um, I've been building for several years there. It, it is not a center. I am having run a center for 10 years. That is not the place where I am going back to again, right? <laughs> but I definitely am recognizing the importance of cultivating a set of work, but also I'm very much committed to cultivating the next generation of scholars who are going to carry forward this mantra of work. We need to continue to challenge ourselves to do the work of addressing the multifaceted dimensions of what it means to be a Latinx student in this country. Although we touched on the surface of identity work, we really need to continue to provide spaces where Latinx learning experiences are amplified. As a community, we need to truly understand ourselves, others, and how we should move in solidarity under the Latinx term. We have to interrogate anti-Blackness functions in our community and how we dismantle them. We need to think about how we take up spaces and how we should give others more space to center our Blackness. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at racethroughedu1 and on Instagram at racethrougheducation. You can also visit us at www.racethrougheducation.com for podcast updates, highlights, resources, and more. And finally, let us know how you feel. Send us an email at racethrougheducation at gmail.com for a chance to have your questions or responses read on the show. Race Through Education is edited and produced by Luis Rodriguez. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.